You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion across the autism community. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky, and I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jared Brown back to the podcast to talk with us about trauma-informed care. Jared has been featured on multiple episodes on this podcast, and we've talked about a variety of topics, including executive functioning, screen time use, social cognition, and theory of mind. Jared's a professor, trainer, and private consultant with extensive experience working with individuals on the spectrum. As we all know, each person with autism is unique and might need additional support in some areas. Families and professional care teams alike should both consider historical traumas when caring for a child in order to help them reach their goals. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Honored to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, I think that this is a topic that oftentimes gets overlooked, so I'm really excited to kind of walk through this with you. But in order for us to even start discussing trauma, I think we have to go and get the building blocks built. And we have to look at the foundation of what is trauma? What are we even talking about right now in in regards to our daily life and trauma? So think about this. I want to just lay this out as a foundation for your audience. Everything I'm talking about has really been amplified during COVID and beyond. The research is coming out. It's pretty clear on that. So everything I'm talking about, just think of COVID as a collective trauma that we're all going through on some capacity. There's actually several studies that have come out in the last couple of years that have really talked about COVID trauma, and some of them have been specific to folks on the autism spectrum. Trauma is one of the biggest topics of them all. If you study mental health psychology, trauma can come from an event, It can be an experience. People can be impacted through their thinking, their behaviors and their feelings. It can impact their relationships with other people. It can have significant impacts on brain development, depending on when the trauma happened. We all understand, I'm sure your audience is familiar with like the adverse childhood experiences research. If you haven't studied that, I'll talk a little bit about that today. There's many dimensions of trauma. There's a simple trauma where it might be minor types of trauma, but we don't want to minimize that because what happens if someone has had countless minor traumas happen to them over a long period of time? Even just being invalidated over and over again or minimized or rejected, those are traumas. And a lot of times those feelings can really have a cumulative effect and build up over time. There's something called betrayal trauma. What happens if a child is growing up in a home and one or both of their caregivers is the perpetrator of abuse? That is an example of betrayal trauma. Complex developmental trauma is going to be more cumulative, widespread, and prolonged, and it typically happens during critical stages of development. So if a young child is growing up in a home, witnessing domestic violence going on. Maybe they're thrusted into the child welfare arena. Maybe there's direct abuse or neglect against that child, and it's happened repeatedly over a longer period of time. That could be an example of trauma. What happens if there's no trauma going on in the home, 
but the child is exposed to like community-based traumas where there's a lot of trauma going on in the neighborhood or at school or on the bus. So trauma can happen from a one-time event, like a car accident, a flood or fire. It could happen from multiple situations and events. That could be an example of complex and developmental trauma. If we were to break it down even further, if your folks wanna really learn about trauma, Look at acute trauma. Acute trauma is another term for when it's going to be usually short-lived. Maybe it's a one-time event. Chronic trauma is oftentimes used interchangeably with complex and developmental trauma. And then you have the topic of historical trauma or intergenerational transmissions of trauma, which you kind of just alluded to briefly. It's not just what happened to the person directly. What happens if that person's mom or dad or grandma and grandpa or great grandma and grandpa had extensive trauma in their history. It's very important to understand the topics of intergenerational transmissions of trauma, historical trauma, obviously racism, assimilation. Historical trauma has often been studied within the context of the Native American community, slavery. They've even looked at this for, through the lens of 9-11 survivors and how the offspring of some of the survivors from 9-11 were Holocaust survivors. So it's very important to understand that topic. And also when you're studying this, really be aware of that adverse childhood experiences research. The first study was published in 1998. And if your audience goes to the CDC's website, they have a really nice page dedicated to that first study. We could spend all day talking about the ACES research, but basically what that means is this research has found that the higher numbers of traumas that person was exposed to before the age of 18, and if those traumas went unaddressed, the person didn't receive proper support, services, interventions, there's a higher likelihood as that person gets older, they're gonna have more physical health problems, could be asthma, increases in cancer, digestive health issues, you, the list goes on and on. More social problems, more mental health problems, just the very nature of a child dealing with these extensive traumas early on in life can impact the body and the way the body communicates with one another, and it can lead to chronic low-grade inflammation. Why do you wanna care about inflammation? Because inflammation is really a driver of most diseases and disorders. Depression really technically is an inflammatory based disorder. So very important to really understand the topic of trauma. I'll kick it back to you, Jeff. Any thoughts no. on that before I go a little bit deeper? Well, I, I love the fact that, I mean, you broke it down so clearly, but I mean, the concept of almost that death by a billion paper cuts and the fact that this almost unrecognized trauma we are all very good at seeing trauma when it's visible, when there's a visual, when there's a there's a remnant of the trauma that occurred. But in the autism community, we're we're talking about a lot of these things that you discussed are are dealing with perception, are dealing with social awareness, are dealing with understanding kind of large scale social constructs, and. If you are not feeling comfortable or not feeling like you can discuss these, don't have the supports to really conceptualize some of these big issues, is that you could ultimately suffer trauma over this. And I'd love for you to kind of take me down that path. So 
we're talking with somebody who may have autism and we're trying to look at what could they have experienced that could have been some of these hidden traumas throughout their lives that maybe we just never took care of or never recognized or didn't give validity to? It gets tricky when we start looking at the impact trauma has on people diagnosed with a neurodevelopmental disorder. And obviously we're talking about autism today, but if you're a human and you are listening to today's episode, we've all been impacted by trauma directly or indirectly. I think it's almost impossible not to be in our world. But when someone with autism or another neurodevelopmental disorder has had trauma histories, the way in which that person processes that experience and maybe displays their behaviors can be somewhat different from the general population. I'll just say a few things about that. What about developmental and emotional age? Maybe you're working with an adult who has autism, who's 30 years old chronologically and has had a trauma history, but they function as a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, or 15-year-old. So we really want to be aware of the topic of developmental, emotional, and social maturity. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everyone with a neurodevelopmental disorder is also going to have executive functioning problems. That can murky the water if they have problems with working memory, cognitive flexibility. We know people with autism struggle with having flexible thinking. Oftentimes it can look like rumination or catastrophizing. The very nature of experiencing untreated trauma could cause those symptoms as well. Communication deficits, language issues. There is some evidence in the neurodevelopmental disorder literature where in some cases the person may be more compliant or have a yes bias when they're being interviewed. So you really want to be careful of that. Now, the research literature on suggestibility in autism really points to the fact that people with autism aren't more suggestible than the general population, but you still want to be on the lookout for it. And being suggestible, highly suggestible, has been studied within the context of trauma if you take out autism in the mix. What about false memory creation sometimes too? We need to take that into account. If a memory is implanted unintentionally where that person believes there's a trauma that happened to them when maybe it didn't. So it gets really confusing. You mentioned perception. What about verbal and abstract reasoning where someone has a real hard time connecting the dots, seeing the forest through the trees, those kind of things. Yep. What kind of traumas do we want to be on the lookout for? Social withdrawal because of maybe it's peer rejection, humiliation. Maybe the person has a very difficult time managing intense emotions. Now we know that's very common for someone with autism and change can be difficult and transitions. And COVID, I, I've consulted on many cases the last few years. The uncertainty, the worry, the fear, the unknown, are those a trauma technically? For some, I would say, yes, it, it causes great distress. And for someone on the autism spectrum, all that uncertainty, the worry, the fear, the constant change, the lack of structure, that can absolutely throw that person into an emotional dysregulated state. I've seen this on cases I've consulted on. It's impacted their sleep even more. It's yep. contributed to stress eating. It's contributed to the person turning to social media and getting thrusted into the online world. 
that's another trauma for some. Couple yeah. cases I've consulted on, the individual who's been on the autism spectrum who's an adult has been taken advantage of and been manipulated out of money online in thinking that people have their best interests in mind even though some of these people didn't. What about traumatic grief? Maybe someone's lost someone. The problem sometimes is people expect folks on the autism spectrum to maybe have those same behavioral reactions as someone without autism with trauma. They may not. You might see developmental regression where maybe a skill was learned and they were doing quite well and then a trauma happened and maybe they went back a few grades. Maybe what you expect for someone to have a trauma reaction, maybe they laugh at something that you can't get through your mind that why are they laughing about the situation where their perception of it and the way they process the event may not be kind of, it doesn't make sense in their mind. There's As something- you describe this, Jared, it, it's, I mean, you're walking through this path and I'm, I'm thinking as a clinician, a lot of these things that could be attributed to trauma are oftentimes probably looked at as underdeveloped skills, are looked at through a lens of, okay, well, this person hasn't developed the skill set or the ability to do something where there might be something underlying why they're responding where they are, which I guess brings the idea that this trauma-informed care should be immersed in most therapies. But in order to do that, I think that uh, clinicians like myself would need to understand what trauma-informed care is, because I think we think of it as a, well, this is for an incident. This is for a special, uh, you know, something exactly or something happened. So now I need to respond. But it, the way you're describing trauma, it sounds like trauma-informed care is different. So maybe you can tell me the care model that actually goes to treating some of this to put it into perspective. So general trauma-informed care practices were not originally developed for folks on the autism spectrum, but I think it is very, very important to use this approach with individuals on the spectrum as well as their families, but there are certain tweaks that probably need to be made. But trauma-informed care, really think of it as a systems-wide, a policy-wide approach. If you're working in an organization, you're looking at your policies, your procedures, your practices, your hiring needs, the way the layout is in your office, how your website looks, how people answer the phone. Are you using approaches and interventions and strategies and the way you talk to people and present yourself in a manner that supports healing and supports positive growth and change and empathy and validation and resilience? It's really a strengths-based perspective. If you wanna become trauma-informed, you really need to obviously understand the impact of trauma, the different dimensions of trauma. It's important to seek out collaboration with other professionals and consultants and bringing in trainers into your organization who understand these topics and really staying current on the empirical-based research literature. But at the core of trauma-informed care is instilling safety for that client as well as the staff. There's, some, there's a whole line of literature that talks about trauma-informed leadership. We won't have time to get into that today, but that would be a good search term if you're listening to this and you're a manager or leader. Definitely look at that. But at the foundation of trauma-informed care is safety and trust. Without that, 
that's really a shaky foundation. So if you're building a house and you're building a house on a really cracked foundation, you can about imagine how long that house is going to hold up. Mm -hmm. You've got to get safety in place. And that client needs to feel valued and respected and believe that hope is possible because they're hearing it and they're experiencing it and they're feeling it from the team who works with them. Another big component of trauma-informed care is helping that client restore power or a sense of self after the trauma, encouraging choice. We know choice-making deficits are a tricky thing in this population. That would be one area of many I would recommend you would probably want to tweak and be aware of choice-making because choice-making is at the core of self-determination and independent living and decision-making. If you are using empathy-based approaches and strengths-based approaches and really focusing on growth, obviously it's important to understand the client's limitations, but you're not making that the sole focus. You're really focusing on building self-worth, self-esteem, self-efficacy. You're really teaching skills that can help that client really improve day-to-day functioning. I'm glad you said that, Jared, because when I look at um, oftentimes, even probably for you and I, is that we go through life and we're looking at masking our deficits. We're looking at trying to be able to cover up any flaws, any warts that we have, anything that we feel like could be a weakness in what we're doing. And I think it's probably pervasive across neurotypical and Uh, neurodiverse communities is that we rely on our strengths and don't want to show people our weaknesses by nature. So how do you, how do you create that? What would your recommendation to be able to create that transparency of, of vulnerability, sharing your failures or whether that's in leadership, whether that's in relationships or whether that's in treatment, but feeling confident enough to establish that trust, to be able to say, Hey, I failed here. Now let's let's talk about this so that I can learn from that experience versus having to hide from that experience or withdraw, which are some of the symptoms you were saying exist with trauma. At the practitioner level, if you can, again, look at what you're doing when you're working with clients, are you using approaches that help instill safety and trust for the client? Are you really focusing on hope and recovery Part of that, too, is staying regulated. This literature really talks about just staying calm, using approaches that might be very gentle for that person because maybe they are traumatized and they have a lot of trauma triggers. Focusing on your own self-care, focusing on strengths, highlighting resources, understanding the importance of vulnerability and empathy, and I always use this any training I give. I, the approaches I try to use, I'm never perfect, but trying to be kind and calm and patient and curious. So if you're seeing behavioral reactions in the clients you're working with, or maybe even it's a coworker, don't jump to conclusions that you know why that person's doing that. If you can just take a step back, pause, reflect, and realize maybe they had a trauma trigger. Maybe they're sleep deprived. Maybe there's some communication barriers or language barriers. You kind of brought up a few things that remind me of the topic of that cloak of competence. You'll find that term used in the intellectual and developmental disability literature. 
where the individual may have learned some adaptive skills along the way to kind of cloak their true deficits. Very important to take your time to get to know the client, focus on relationship building. Those are all critical components, I think, to trauma-informed care. Five questions I always ask myself when looking at this through this lens. Are you helping the client feel valued and respected? Are you using approaches that take into account that client's rejection history, but then helping them rewrite that story? Is there any shame going on in this client's life and really addressing shame and making sure you're not using any approaches that seem to enhance that person's level of shame? If the clients felt isolated throughout the years because maybe they've been rejected by peers, which we know from the research literature, I've seen statistics anywhere from like 46 to 94% of people on the autism spectrum have had histories of being bullied and teased. Have they had a history of being abandoned or ignored? Those are the things I would really consider. And if they've had those histories, those are all traumas sometimes bigger than others, but really focusing on that and helping that client rewrite that story would be a few starting points I would recommend. That statistic that you put out there of 94%, I mean, up to, and then and granted, this is a variety of researches that we're looking at, but that, that kind of hints at and indicates what you were talking about earlier, that idea that, you know, maybe everybody hasn't experienced, and I'll call it a macro trauma, but everybody probably has had a variety of micro traumas, smaller traumas throughout their lives. And it it kind of goes into the thought of, is it something that I need to recognize or do I go into some of these situations just presuming, you know, this person probably has experienced trauma. I need to utilize all those skills that you just said of being calm, being a listener, having the ability to empathize and that that just needs to be how I approach every relationship and especially with somebody on the spectrum because they were more likely to have a negative social relationship. Is that just a presumption that I need to make on a regular basis and always engage in these skill sets? There is no harm in using those approaches for any human being, the way you interact with yourself and how you talk about yourself and think about yourself or how you interact with your colleagues, coworkers, your family. You can never go wrong, I don't think, with being kind and calm and patient and curious and avoiding judgment and really using these approaches. Because what happens if the client you find out down the road had no trauma history whatsoever? There's no side effects to this. It's all good. Yeah. It's gonna build. <laughs> It's going to build rapport. It's going to build trust, hopefully, within the workplace, con, con, just looking at the dynamics in an organization. Are you using approaches that are fueling burnout or traumatization and high turnover and people calling in sick? That's why really stressing points for leaders to understand these topics, especially if you're running a larger organization or midsize or even a solo practitioner. You're coming in contact with people and some people might be doing telehealth only. You still got to take this into account through telehealth. I actually did a training last year on trauma-informed telehealth and there's a lot of different strategies out there 
and research that shows that using this through telehealth or even phone-based interventions can be very effective with clients, especially on the autism spectrum. Absolutely. And, and one thing that always comes to mind for me is the fact that, I mean, in, in working in my practice, is that we work a lot with a with a child or with a patient or a client, but we also are engaging all the stakeholders. When I look at not only the depression, the anxiety that's occurring within our our patient set, but with their families, with those that are care holders, because they try and be the strength, they try and be that that pillar for their family at all times, is that that must be that same sort of concept of a lot of paper cuts, building up, building up, building up, and being strong and being strong. And then there's got to be a breaking point. Is that the same sort of trauma? And, and should we keep an eye on that constantly with those families that are that are helping their their loved ones through treatment to make sure they're cared for the same way on a trauma level? I am a huge fan of systems approaches because if you're only focusing on one family member and the other family members are really hurting, we're missing something. So maybe you are a solo practitioner working with a child with autism, but you know that that family is really struggling. Maybe it's a referral to a marriage and family therapist or a parenting coach. There's a whole line of research literature that talks about parental burnout, parental self-efficacy issues, caregiver distress. I'll give you a few things. I mean, just look at COVID. That has amplified stress, poverty, homelessness, social distress, or people going through a divorce, inflation right now, gas prices. All of those are fuel on the fire for some of these families. And what happens? In some cases, now the family is more burnt out. They're not sleeping at night. They're not eating healthy. There's a big direct link between parents who are really burnt out and a possible increased risk in engaging in child abuse, unfortunately, mm -hmm. or domestic violence. I'm not saying all parents that are under high levels of stress or burnout do that, but it is a risk factor. Being yeah. aware of how these things can start creeping into that parent's mind, thinking maybe they're not a good parent or they're starting to have negative thinking and it's creating more conflict within that entire family system. So we wanna be aware of that and moving this family to a point of helping them thrive. And how do we do that? Trauma-informed care approaches, validating and accepting the fact that times are tough, but you're not alone. Maybe getting them connected to a support group with other family members who've experienced this where they know that they're not going through this alone. Once people realize, hey, I'm not the only person feeling this, sometimes, that can really help. Attachment-based approaches, I think, can be very helpful as well. Helping parents, maybe some parents are really struggling with boundary setting or healthy living practices. All of those things can help a family really thrive and really instilling resilience and gratitude and optimism and self-care into the mix. I don't Absolutely. think you can So what, what, are, what are these first steps? I mean, in order to get something started, it sometimes takes a little bit of a push. It takes somebody getting you to, you know, to that first, that first activity, that first initiation of starting the process and being able to, to help a child feel safe or building relationships as the cornerstone to all this is what would you be giving that family 
as far as a direction and action item to get started in this process so that so they can begin utilizing some of the trauma-informed approaches? If you look at the research on like trauma-based interventions, they're many and varied, but at that core again, instilling safety and trust and rapport. It doesn't matter how much you know, how many trainings you've gone to, certifications without having trust with that family and developing a healthy, positive rapport, it's difficult. Self-regulation and promoting self-regulation is recommended in this research literature, not just for the child, but parental self-regulation. Modeling that behavior to your child can promote self-regulation. There is research to support the fact that art-based approaches can be helpful, music-based interventions, maybe it's self-reflective activities, engaging in like journaling, different kinds of self-care, getting an exercise plan, maybe it's consulting with a nutritionist, maybe it's working with an EMDR therapist or some therapist who specializes in trauma to help that person make better sense of their experience, starting to help them kind of process it. Maybe it's like narrative-based approaches. Once you can start regulating the individual and they can start making sense of things and helping them maybe re regulate their body, maybe it's deep breathing activities, understanding some of the literature on the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal access, and learning how to activate our parasympathetic nervous system, kind of just calming down the mind and body, then they might be able to take in more words. They might be able to take in more activities. One thing I forgot to mention in this literature, if sleep is off, gotta treat sleep. That's foundational. Most people with these extensive trauma histories have sleep problems. If you take trauma out of the mix, the overwhelming majority of people with autism have some sleep problems going on. And I'm doing a lot of work in the area of like that gut-brain health connection. I've come across some studies saying at least 90% of people on the autism spectrum also have some stuff going on with their gut. So getting the digestive health better is a huge, huge component to this in my opinion. And a lot of times people are like surprised to hear that. The reason that is, is because most of our serotonin is produced in our gut. And if the gut is off, our emotional health is off. We don't usually sleep the best. So it's really a multifactorial approach. And not one professional is going to understand all this. Yep. It's really doing it with a team of professionals. So Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like everything in life, there's there's no easy solution. And, and for this especially, it sounds like everything is very personalized, yet team-informed. So where... I guess, where could people get more information? Where are you suggesting, you know, if you want to learn about trauma-informed care, to be able to create that team, to talk to other people about it, where do we go for that information so that we can all start that, that information education gathering process? If you go to Google Scholar and just type in these topics, you'll find thousands of articles, abstracts. You go to YouTube, you're going to find tons of videos. There's been tons of books written on these topics I'm talking about. Sharing my email with folks. I've done several podcasts on different dimensions of trauma, just searching me online and putting in trauma podcasts. There's, there's just so much to learn about these topics. Where do you start? I guess trying to become informed. That's a good starting point. 
finding a therapist, maybe locally or some sort of case manager or social worker who understands this topic and then building that team. There's less research on these practices within the context of autism, but there are more and more studies coming out. But looking at some of the general literature and then making the modifications to the intervention to match that client's strengths, their limitations, and really taking into account their emotional, behavioral, social, and cognitive functioning capabilities over the fact of how old they truly are, because a lot of times there's a mismatch between those two. Now, Jared, I, I appreciate you sharing all this information because I think it's like, once again, there's so many layers to decision making and so many support points that we all need as individuals. And I mean, we're talking through the lens of autism and through this podcast, but all of these things overlie our lives. And I think that it's important to have these discussions. So I appreciate you coming on. And I and I do suggest that people look at your material is that they they check out the presentations that, that you've done. And I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to share where is best to find that again, because you've done a lot of the research that could save people some of the time and energy to really understand these topics better. I think the best thing is share my email. If folks have questions, just shoot me an email. I'll send you links to different podcasts and recommended articles. Maybe there's some good videos online that you get lost because you go online and you find thousands and thousands of articles. And where do you start? It's overwhelming. Shoot me an email. I'll, I'll give you my top 10 list or something like that to get you a good starting point. Uh, that sounds like a wonderful thing to have is Jared's top 10 list. So I, I might shoot you an email myself. So, but thanks so much for coming on. And we do appreciate your time, Jared. Absolutely. Honored to be here again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.